0: I, and all past and current members of the ACSS team, would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organization who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast.
1: This is a moment that requires leadership.
0: China is signing a security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The
1: Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one
2: threat. And so friends, AUKUS is born with a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under.
1: I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast. I'm Ryan, one of the Hub Managers for this year's summit, and today we are joined by Associate Professor Matt MacDonald from the University of Queensland. Matt teaches in the School of Political Science and International Studies at UQ, and the focus of this episode is exploring the concept of security itself, before discussing some of Matt's recent research regarding security, climate change and the environment. Matt, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the ACSS podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. Why don't we kick off and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your research interests, and what you teach here at UQ.
2: Great. So um, my name is Matt McDonald. I'm an Associate Professor in International Relations here at the School of Political Science and International Studies at UQ. I teach Australian foreign policy, global security at undergrad level, and then at Masters, I teach foreign policy and diplomacy. So my research focuses significantly on theoretical approaches to security and their application to a range of issues. But and most recently the focus has been climate change and the intersection between um, security and, uh, and climate change and so in that context i've um, written a bit both on that intersection between climate change and security but also on broader international climate politics as well okay
1: well why don't we start right there what is security how do we define it and how is it
2: typically understood it's often described as an essentially contested concept and it's uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the years on in terms of giving meaning to security. In our um, textbook security studies, Paul Williams and I land on this idea that while it is possible to define security as something like the preservation of a group's core values um, and their protection from external threats, what constitutes that group? What constitutes their values, and what constitutes threats to it are all um, contested, are all uh, and are all very different depending on our perspective. So, a more traditional approach in international relations is one that focuses on the ways in which military, external military threats. Pose challenges to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of nation states, um, and that's what we focus on when we focus on security. That more narrow understanding of it in strategic studies terms, almost. Whereas a range of critical approaches have said, well, let's actually look at what makes individuals insecure, and then extend the range of threats to humans and human collectives in different ways. Even recently. Um, In some of the work I've done recently, I've made a case for understanding security in terms of ecosystems and their resilience in the face of climate change. So there's a significant level of contestation over how exactly we understand security and what we understand as threats to it. The stakes, though, are relatively high in the sense that um, for key institutions of world politics, like states, like the United Nations, they define their reason for being primarily on the basis of the provision of security, whether it's the cent- the social contract in the case of states, or whether it's that charter of the UN that says the maintenance of international peace and security is the central role of the UN itself. And so that means the stakes of how security is understood and defined are actually pretty high.
1: So the next question I want to ask is, which actors are typically involved in the security process? And perhaps the more important question there is, who isn't, who should be?
2: so usually when we're talking about security we talk about states and in particular their um, military so their defense establishment um and this consistent with a sort of class fits in idea of the role of the military as instruments of decision makers at the government level so we're talking about um we're talking about states and we're talking about the central instruments of protecting from external military threat or prosecuting um sort of conflicts coercion externally Um, Internationally, there's been an increasing focus on the role of the United Nations, in particular the Security Council in terms of sanctioning peace operations internationally, in terms of providing a forum in which different actors can discuss how to respond to international issues. But even in the more traditional agenda, there's an increasing array of actors who are relevant to our considerations. Obviously, terrorist groups become important, uh, piracy and pirates, all sorts of different uh, criminal enterprises mercenaries in terms of private um, military contractors insurgents all of these actors are potentially relevant to dynamics of conflict much less when we focus on broader challenges of climate change or poverty when we might need to focus on actors like multinational corporations the role of individuals and their life choices in terms of climate change Um, the role of non-governmental organisations and how they're engaging with or promoting certain sets of ends and outcomes. So I think there's a really dizzying array potentially of actors who are relevant to the study of security, even though the more traditional focus has been states and their militaries.
1: Okay. What does the security conversation tend to look like? How does an issue become a security issue? And then what does that mean for the way that it's talked about and the way that it's dealt
2: with? So there's a sense that um, issues uh, um, become security issues through choices that different political communities make. So in this sense, and this is probably, you know, I'm probably closer to the constructivist edge of international relations theory, there's a sense that security is constructed in the sense that it means different things to different political communities at different times, um, depending on their perspective, depending on all sorts of different factors, ideational, historical as well as material, geographical, all these factors influence some states to understand what their security means in different ways from others. And we sort of know that intuitively, um, but often more traditional approaches tend to say, well, no, this is what security means and this is how states uh, understand it. Um, And even a more specific framework in this context is the securitization framework, which is developed by theorists at the Copenhagen School, um, Ole Veva and colleagues, And they make a case that security is the product of a speech act in the sense that issues come to be designated as existential threats. If an audience accepts that designation, um, then emergency measures are enabled to actually deal with that um, threat. So a textbook example would be Australia's approach to asylum seekers where in the early 2000s, where there's nothing inevitable about viewing... Asylum seekers arriving by boat as a threat to national security, and yet it was rep- they were represented as threats to sovereignty, to potentially Australian values, potentially hiding terrorists among their number, and um, this was widely supported by the Australian um, population. This type of um, articulation, in the process, um, Australia undertook a series of emergency measures in terms of dealing with that those. Um, those people. So the inter- their interception, um, the deployment of military to prevent them arriving in Australia, excising Australia's islands and even Australia's mainland, um, developing uh, offshore det- mandatory offshore detention, um, essentially imprisoning people for long periods of time, and even revisiting elements of its commitment under the um, Refugee Convention. All of these things for securitization theorists. They would understand that as a series of emergency measures that have been enabled through the depiction of asylum seekers arriving by boat as an external military threat.
1: So in light of that, in your view, what do you think are some of the issues with the way that we conceptualise and talk about security in Australia? And what advice would you give to the next generation of Australian security thinkers and practitioners about
2: how they should conceptualise security? I think we need to be, um, it's a bit like the national interest in that we should be fairly sceptical when we hear people talk about um, national security or security as if we all know exactly what everyone has in mind because it is contested and not only is it contested but the choices about how we define or understand security and threats to it are potentially politically significant in enabling certain sets of responses and giving legitimacy to some actions and some actors relative to relative to others. So in that context, I think um, being really critical and reflexive around uh, one's use of the term, but also about how others use it and essentially say, well, you know, what choices are we making around whose security is viewed as being important to protect and preserve in these contexts? So in the Australian context, for example, we've obviously had this massive commitment to a significant defence expenditure through this AUKUS agreement. That's the sort of thing where there, are, if we're viewing this through the lens of Australia developing its military capacity in fairly traditional terms, it actually makes a lot of sense for Australia to be prioritising that type of action. But it's entirely appropriate for people to be saying, is that really what our security is about, isn't? Um, you know, there's a significant opportunity cost of this expenditure, that's money that could be spent um, on action around climate change, on getting our aid somewhere closer to the 0.7% UN target, for example, and helping substantively impoverished people or future generations in the process. There are choices, ethical choices and implications of particular understandings of security. So I think Bearing that in mind is uh, is the most important thing we can do. Is actually being a little bit critical when we hear the term and a bit reflexive around how we use it. Thank you, very sage advice.
0: Are you ready to take your career to new heights? Whatever your goals or passions, postgraduate study can help get you there faster. From short courses that can be completed in just six months to dual-discipline master's programs that allow you to specialise in your chosen field, there is no better place to study law, international relations and diplomacy than the Australian National University in Canberra, the nation's law and policy-making heart. Applications are now open at the ANU College of Law. Choose from our flagship Master of Laws, a one-year full-time program open to both law and non-law graduates with five distinct specializations. The Juris Doctor, which is your pathway to becoming a practicing legal professional. Or the Graduate Certificate of New Technologies Law, which is delivered entirely online and explores the rapid advancements of artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain and more on the legal landscape. Best of all, you'll learn from some of the world's foremost experts that include judges and policy makers from across Australia, not to mention legal scholars at the top of their fields in international law, national security, diplomacy and more. Our graduates go on to achieve remarkable success in their careers, making their mark in law firms, government agencies, the international civil service and beyond. So if you're ready to unlock your potential and new career opportunities, study law and change the world at ANU. Visit law.anu.edu.au to explore our programs and begin your journey today.
1: What are the sorts of broader views of security that you consider in your research and what sorts of non-traditional security issues do you include in that definition of security?
2: So I am really interested in questions of how political communities give meaning to security in different contexts. So that um, involves less a sense of um, this is why this country should view climate change as a security issue and often more a sense of what um, choices have countries made around um, their security agenda, for example, and um, how do we make sense of the origins and drivers of those particular choices. Um, But in other work, I've made a case, so the work that I've done on climate change more recently has essentially said, look, um, given the scale of the existential threat that climate change poses, it it doesn't make a lot of sense to exclude it from the way we think about um, security. But in the process, the most normatively defensible approach would be to focus on how ecosystems themselves are challenged by the threat of climate change rather than necessarily how um, nation states are challenged by the secondary implications of climate change, like population displacement or even conflict um, arising from fragility that in turn is driven by some of the effects of climate change. So in that context, um, I've, um, in, in different sets of projects, I've made a case in some for let's examine how political communities do understand security and where those choices have come from. In other contexts, I've said, well, if we're taking these issues seriously, this is how we should understand and approach, um, security. And I've tried at different levels. I'd see them as one as being more a deconstructive approach and the other is more, um, reconstructive, but I think we, we certainly can't dismiss offhand, um, issues as security issues because they don't fit within our traditional definition, especially if the UN Security Council is debating a wider range of issues and states themselves are increasingly acknowledging issues like disease, like climate change, like human trafficking, like poverty as issues of security in that context. we, um, I'm with the Copenhagen School and their sentiment that actually rather than us develop our criteria about what we think security means, we should actually examine how political communities themselves are giving meaning to security and some of the implications of those in practice. Mm. Well, actually, on the topic of the
1: UN Security Council, um, you've recently written an article in International Affairs talking about some of the issues facing climate change when it's discussed in this sort of regular, so to speak, world of international relations and security. Can you tell us a bit about those roadblocks and why they happen and perhaps how they could be overcome?
2: Sure. Well, that article is a bit of a um, uh, cr- criticism of the position of states that are opposed to a Security Council resolution. So in that context, Russia, China and um, India as well, the, who are all expressing reservations about the UN Security Council um, addressing some of the implications of climate change. Um, and essentially what it attempted to do is to say, well, let's have a look at the the arguments in favour of a UN Security Council resolution, which were things like, let's try to make sure that climate change is considered in all peace operations, let's develop a particular office and have regular reporting to the um, Secretariat on um, some of the implications of climate change in security terms. Fairly low level responses, but important nonetheless. Um, And the opposition was often on the grounds that um, or the opposition put forward by Russia, China, and India were about things like this. It doesn't fit within the Security Council's mandate. This is just other actors trying to mobilise this this issue in response. We should deal with it as an issue of development. We should focus on that rather than this security um, language. And even um, in that context, basically saying, look, this isn't going to help climate change to be dealt with in that in that way. Um, the paper then goes on to say, well, actually, if you interrogate the sort of claims they're making and reflect on the authenticity of those claims in terms of their broader action on climate change, what's clear looking, looking at the states arguing in favour of a resolution and those against it is that the states arguing in favour of a resolution with states who are either at the forefront of mitigation action generally, like a lot of European states, or are acutely vulnerable to the effects of climate change, like a lot of the developing states. Um, whereas the three states that opposed were states that, were cons- that are invested to different degrees in the fossil fuel economy, that have generally been seen as at the back end of states in terms of their ambition, and been more likely historically to play something of a spoiler role at international negotiations. So when we pull back and actually interrogate the authenticity of those claims, It doesn't look particularly compelling. Um, And in that context, there's also this broader concern that if these states, all three of them at different levels, have misgivings about the Liberal international order more generally that the Security Council um, clearly sits in, then it does raise questions not just about this particular resolution but about the extent to which we will see meaningful international cooperation consistent with the scale of the challenge that climate change poses so how do you think climate
1: change um, can be addressed in a reasonable way do we need to change our ethical frameworks in the way that
2: we think about climate change and the way that we conceptualize security oh that's a massive massive (laughs) question i mean in some ways if you're dealing with um Clearly, it's the case that if you were trying to deal with a problem like climate change, you wouldn't start with this. You wouldn't develop the system, the political system that we have. You wouldn't have states, 200 different entities that have to get together and decide what constitutes a fair response to the issue when it's so complicated in terms of different levels of historical responsibility, different capacity to actually um, adjust economies and forms of energy use, different um, levels of vulnerability to the problem itself. All those things make that acutely difficult. And you've got to try to get 200 states to essentially say, okay, so this is should be our target and this is how we get there. Um, ironically, I think some of the things that we've seen recently have been that um, when markets start to get behind a transition towards renewable energy in particular, that can be... Really significant in terms of developing momentum for mitigation action. So that type of transition that we've seen in some cases, um, even pushing governments, like in Australia under the previous government, they were as critical of um, energy companies for wanting to move away from fossil fuels as they were as they were trying to incentivise take up of renewables. So in that context, some we've, there's there's ground there's certainly grounds for hope even if not optimism, given some degree of climate change is with us and locked in, is already causing harm. Um, Really, at this point, we need to put as much pressure on governments as we can to increase their level of ambition and the timetable for transitioning to net zero. We need to continue to invest significantly in renewables and to facilitate the take-up of that form of energy in different parts of the world. Hmm do you think it's valuable for the issue
1: of climate change to be securitized and to be brought under that discourse umbrella of exceptional, me- exceptional measures? I'm hoping to get you to tell us a little bit about your conception of uh, ecological security and what that means.
2: So, yeah, I, I do actually. So one of the things with the UN Security Council piece that you mentioned is that, Really looking at the states making a case for um, securitization and looking at what they had in mind in the process suggests that we probably don't need to be too worried about some of the nefarious implications of securitization that its architects warn about. You know, of course, Weber and others said securitization, not necessarily a good thing. It means exceptional measures, emergency, it means dealing with with, um, issues in an illiberal inappropriate way often. And some would support that within the debates about climate change and environmental change more specifically and say, oh, you know, this is just a cynical ploy by militaries to try to continue to speak to their relevance in a contemporary um, era in which they seem less relevant than they used to be. Um, But When you actually look at what states uh, in that UN Security Council debate, for example, when you look at what they're asking for, they're fairly mainstream, moderate measures that would actually help address elements of the um, crisis. And they're made by states that are interested in addressing the problem of climate change. This isn't, um, you know, if anything, those states most opposed to action are the ones who are the problem um, significantly at an international level. So that's one thing when we look at who's making this case. The other is that um, actually we can't avoid this idea that climate change constitutes a threat to security. It is increasingly discussed in the Security Council by some estimates over some of the recent research suggests that about three quarters of states acknowledge climate change as a national security issue within their key strategic documents, defence white papers, those types of things. So there is increasing recognition that climate change is a security issue. This is backed up in a lot of the research. Uh, In that context, then we need to sort of pull back and say, well, what is an appropriate, given what people are worried about, what is an appropriate way of drawing this linkage that actually doesn't encourage perverse responses like building boundaries to stop climate refugees from entering, but actually focuses our attention on mitigation and on facilitating mitigation efforts, on trying to minimise harm that's going to be experienced by future generations and other living beings and people in the developing world. And in that context, I made a case that we should focus on the security of ecosystems themselves. This is my 2021 book. which will soon be available in paperback, available at almost no good bookstores, but you could probably find it in an online re- retailer if you're keen enough. But the book makes a case for ecological security defined in terms of the resilience of ecosystems themselves. And it says if we're really interested in addressing climate change in a way that's ethically defensible, consistent with this linkage between climate change and security, then we really should be focusing on ecosystems. You've got an idea that you've
1: presented in some of your
2: work about
1: ecosystem resilience as um, something to be oriented towards rather than an endpoint to be achieved. What does that mean in practice?
2: So in practice, I think I would want to say, I think there's always this, this danger in saying, you know, we need to preserve the the contemporary functionality of ecosystems as they currently operate, in part because with climate change already happening, it's acutely difficult to work out exactly what some of the effects of climate change are gonna be on different ecosystems. It's one of the reasons why, um, while everyone agrees climate change is human-induced is happening, Now the uncertainty is around exactly what the timeframes will look like and how different ecosystems will respond. We can't rule out things like the death of the Amazon rainforest or another abrupt scenario like the shutting down of the Atlantic current, for example, these types of things captured in that movie the day after tomorrow. Um, For that reason, it's acutely complex to say, let's therefore focus all our attention on retaining... The functionality of different ecosystems but if we have that as the way in which we think about the natural world if if that encourages us if we sort of imbibe that as a sensibility um that approach to say well let's focus our attention on the resilience of ecosystems even if we just see it as an inclination rather than a definitive project then that's more likely to encourage sets of practices that are consistent with preserving the um minimizing harm to the most vulnerable um, across time across space across species in that light what would a practical and ethical approach
1: to ecological security look like in the australian context
2: so in the australian context i think the the first thing would be that actually there's an urgent need for Australia to even address this at some of the um, more traditional ways when it comes to security. So I was presenting to colleagues in Defence in Canberra recently basically saying on the back of this comparative international project that I've been working on that's funded by the Australian Research Council that looks at how different countries around the world who have led this agenda, what choices have they made around how climate change is viewed as a security issue—is it incorporated in defence or foreign policy? What sets of practices are they putting in place? And when I was speaking to them, I said we're a long way behind the eight ball when it comes to the types of preparations that need to be made within the defence sector. It should be climate change should be a central consideration to issues around training, around equipment management, around procurement, around the management of estates. Um, so. Obviously, Defence is the largest landholder in Australia, but particularly exposed to um, natural disasters, rising sea levels, hotter temperatures. Um, Are we thinking enough about climate change when we think about the number of times that the ADF is going to be called upon to engage in humanitarian assistance and disaster relief missions abroad and then at home? And if anything, the most recent strategic review suggested that actually Australia, the Defence Force, doesn't really want to be... Um, the first port of call when it comes to responding to natural disasters. I'm here to to tell them that they will be called upon regardless of whether they like it or not. So um, even in those more traditional terms, there's a lot that defence as a sector should be doing to address some of the security implications of climate change, especially given just how important this is to some of our neighbours in the Pacific Um, But incorporating elements of ecological security means pushing, means um, encouraging us to think more fundamentally about increasing the speed of this transition away from fossil fuels. It means actually taking really seriously our obligations to others throwing lots and lots of money, a lot more than we currently give to other states to help them develop their own adaptive capacity, but also transition away from fossil fuels. There's all sorts of things we should be doing in the mitigation space um, to try to um, act in a way that's consistent with the scale of the, the threat.
1: Speaking of mitigation efforts, Um, You recently wrote an article on geoengineering, which I found pretty interesting, considering the controversial nature of the idea. Um, Could you give us a little bit of background um, for listeners who might not be aware what geoengineering is and why it's controversial? And then tell us a little bit about your position on it.
2: So um, geoengineering refers to usually two different types of action. One is um, carbon dioxide removal and the other one is solar radiation management. Um, so one is about basically trying to artificially minimize the um, sort of the amount of sun's rays that are trapped in the earth's atmosphere as a result of climate change as a result of the increase in greenhouse gases since the um, pre-industrial era the other one is actively removing um, uh, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere itself carbon dioxide specifically so the two different types something like sequestration carbon sequestration sequestration that you might have heard of is consistent with um, carbon dioxide removal. Um, but similarly, the some of the more controversial interventions are things like um, stratospheric aerosol injection that's essentially about deploying sulfites to, um, again, to artificially minimise how much of the sun's rays are are trapped in coming through and then trapped in the earth's atmosphere. It's it's sort of recreating what happens with large scale volcanic eruptions. So it's seen as really controversial for a range of different reasons. We don't tend to know exactly what some of the ecological effects of those interventions are going to be. So there's uncertainty in that context. Um, They often require being sustained over a period of time otherwise you can have what's called termination shock where actually there's a rapid and significant change if they're ever curtailed. Some are deeply concerned about mitigation deterrence, so the idea that this is seen as a technological silver bullet to the problem of climate change and will deter states from actually making some of those difficult choices around transitioning away from fossil fuels will think oh, we can have our cake and eat it too. And then consistent with that, there are broader concerns about the extent to which this is um, a type of intervention that is just wholly inconsistent with with recognition of the Anthropocene context and the idea that we should be humble when we think about our place in the world and we should be trying to connect with the natural environment, you know, to a lot of people, this looks like an attempt to master nature, to, to lean into this idea of humanity as a as a planetary force um that's inconsistent with the spirit in which we should be engaging with the natural space so it's deeply controversial in the work that i've done there's a project i'm working on at the moment that looks at um some of the security implications of the deployment of geoengineering and whether we will see some of those implications play out you know interstate tension if we see unilateral um deployment of geoengineering but in the um In a recent piece in the journal Environmental Politics, the case I make there is that essentially it is, there are all these dangers with geoengineering, but it's more difficult to rule out given the harms associated with climate change itself. And that if it's approached in the right way, you know, through the lens of reflexivity, of humility, um, of uh, restraint, then we could potentially imagine progress, the progressive deployment of it as a, at least as a time saving, um, or as something to buy us some more time while we actually start to move away from fossil fuels properly.
1: Thanks for that, Matt. Clearly we've got much to think about when it comes to the security implications of climate change and not just from the perspective of humanitarian aid, disaster relief and migration that is now pretty common in the discourse, but also this potential for some climate actions to contribute to security tensions. Now, finally, I know this might be a bit difficult to address briefly, but I'd like to bring things back to a bit of a take-home message for our audience. Uh, What sort of policies in terms of mitigation actions and regional and multilateral cooperation should Australia be pursuing if we were to adopt this perspective of ecological security?
2: It's hard to, in this sense, it is hard. Ecological security as a discourse is it's sort of harder to imagine what it would look like as a policy framework because in some ways it actually is a massive critique of the whole idea of the state system. So in the same way you can say that about human security, what's a human security policy? Well, it doesn't begin with states incorporating and pursuing it, even if you recognise they have to play some role in term- as agents. In the Australian context, I would say we have generally played a more constructive role internationally than we've been willing to back up domestically. So um, the big issue for us, in terms of being taken seriously, is actually leading into no new fossil fuel development, transitioning really rapidly away from fossil fuels. So, um, and that extends to things like exports, not because coal exports aren't necessarily um, calculated against Australia's emissions under the terms of the Paris Agreement, but um, clearly they do play a role in terms of climate change in the same way that arms dealers can't say, well, we don't know what they're doing with the weapons that we're selling them. Maybe they're being nice to each other. Maybe they're using them as, as, um, as vases for flowers or something. But um, so in that context, Australia is implicated in greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere. And if you're leaning into this idea of orienting towards the harm, ecological harm being caused and in the process, the vulnerability of the most vulnerable, then you are significantly and urgently moving away from anything that looks like new fossil fuel development or the facilitation of fossil fuel burning uh, at any level. Internationally, it means really taking seriously our commitments to um, others, and in particular in the Pacific, and engaging with them in terms of developing um, aid programs that that focus really significantly on development of their resilience in the face of some of those effects as well. So, it's not in a sense that a policy, a range of policy settings consistent with that, wouldn't necessarily be that. Um, Uh, controversial, or it would essentially just be, let's do mitigation, but really do it properly. Let's stop digging up fossil fuels and exporting them to other countries. Let's really take seriously our international obligations to others. Let's try to make sure that all big decisions we make around energy use around forms of production take into account the ecological harm associated with those decisions
1: you make it sound so straightforward when you put it like that. But that's about all we've got time for today. So Associate Professor Matt MacDonald, thank you very much for your time and for coming on the ACSS podcast.
2: Thanks for having me, Ron.